0: Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. We pray this morning that God would help us, Father. I come to you this morning. I'm so grateful today. God, for your loving hand. God, your sweet mercy. God, that you supply. God, day in and day out. I pray, oh Lord, that you ever to minister to the minds that are here this morning. God, touch them, strengthen them, Lord, by the power of the Holy Ghost. Help us, God, today, Lord Jesus, to look one more time. God, at this gift, Lord, that has been given to us, Lord, of repentance. God, not just, Lord, of sin as a life change, but God, of temptation on a day-by-day thing, Lord God, that would, Lord Jesus, try to undercut us, Lord Jesus, or take advantage of us. I Pray, oh God, today we'll love you and we'll thank you, God, for what you do and what you accomplish, Lord, in our hearts today. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen, amen. Everybody say amen. 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 You may be seated today. Good to see everybody in the house of the Lord. Amen. Glad to have our guests with us. Good to have Kelsey and the girls, or two girls at least. Amen. The other one's probably back there. Amen. So glad to have them with us this morning. Amen. On this holiday weekend. And glad to see you that are out. Again, as Bishop said, there's just one service this morning, and there will be none tonight. Uh, spend time for your family. Or if you want to, Brother Mason's preaching in Henderson. Morning and night. Amen. And so, if you want to go hear Brother Mason, you can make the hour and 20-so journey and uh, hear Brother Mason at Haven Pentecostal Church. Amen. This evening. The gift of repentance. If you'll allow me this morning, let me just describe a little narrative here in our Bibles. They were newlyweds. How exciting it must have been for them to set up their first home together. Anybody remember being a newlywed? Do you remember the excitement, or is that like long gone? <laughs> newlyweds putting that first home together you know they discuss maybe their new normal as a married couple what that would exactly look like you know you got to figure those things out how you're going to work with one another to make that new life together happy and fulfilling with one another and he this individual was gainfully employed his boss had taken a real likening to him he had been promoted given some very great responsibilities He was a very quick, rising young man in the company. His job, though, it wasn't particularly difficult, but it did require his attention to detail, required for him to be vigilant in keeping the workplace safe. And these two, uh, they entered into this newlywed scenario. They they shared responsibilities of keeping the home. She was a stay-at-home wife. Uh, They did not need a second income at this time. No children was there to raise as of yet so they could make it with their living expenses easily just with one income. Everything else was just kept at a minimum for them. His role in the home was to keep the yard and landscaping manicured. Anybody other guy out there have that responsibility except me? Amen, brother Fred has yards and lawns to keep manicured. Amen, and so he was kept that, he was the man of the house. He he well understood his responsibility to protect his wife, to guard her and their property from any intrusion. They lived in a pretty nice neighborhood. It was decent, pretty nice neighborhood. But one could never be too careful. You know, we've had things happen in Mount Carmel. I thought, in Mount Carmel, are you serious? So you can never be too careful. Her job was, and this is something that they agreed on, so no one start throwing tomatoes at me, okay? Her job was to clean and and, and straighten the home, prepare the meals, keep everything well at the household. Sounds like a pretty stereotypical arrangement, or at least it used to. Might sound a little archaic to some. But by some, some expectations today, but it worked well for them. They were starting out their new life together. They, they keenly understood one thing, and that was this, that they owed everything that they were, everything that they were going to be. They owed all of that to God. After all, they knew that although they may have come together, it was ultimately the hand of the Lord that had guided their two lives to intersect on this journey called life. There was no denying that. They knew that without doubt, and consequently, They determined then that they would be people of faith, people that would uphold the things of the Lord and have a walk with God. Their plan was for the endurance of their life to serve the Lord as a couple, serve the Lord as a team, do all that he called them to do or desired for them to do. It was their practice that they would rise up early in the morning and that they would spend the first part of their day in prayer and conversation in communication with their God. They often even remarked that it felt as though God would be waiting for them when they went to those places of prayer. Have you ever been in one of those scenarios that you go to that place that you often have been to for prayer with God and whenever you showed up there, it was like He was waiting on you to show up, to come into that place of approach and communication with the Lord? Well, one faithful day, the husband, whose name was Adam, which you probably already have gleaned, let down his guard. While he was distracted, danger entered into the home that he was supposed to be protecting. He turned just in time to see his wife Eve succumb to temptation. And why didn't he say anything in that moment? Why didn't he open his mouth But he was just standing there, perhaps standing there and staring at the horror of what was taking place. We may never know why he didn't open his mouth. But nevertheless, what's a little bit more mystifying than him not opening his mouth was that he followed her lead into what she was doing, followed her lead into the temptation and fell to the same temptation that she had just uh, succumbed to. And it seemed to be. Far more bewildered, if you will, for him than she because instantly their perception on life changed. They suddenly, in that moment, both felt vulnerable where they did not feel that vulnerability before. They both felt in that moment exposed where they had not felt exposed before. Even ashamed, the scripture says, which they had not felt Before they were approaching what was going to be in their life a new normal, one that had started seemingly with no vulnerabilities, no exposure, no shame. Now is going to be riddled with vulnerabilities, shame, and exposure. And so they had they had ran far according to their instinct, they'd ran far into a growth area there in the garden and they hid themselves, the Bible says, from the Lord. And it wasn't long until God came down. He came looking for them. All the while, even the scripture says, calling their names, where art thou, Adam? Where art thou? God even asked them where they were as though he didn't know where they were, but we all know that he knew where they were at. You know, sometimes whenever God asks us where we are, it's not for his benefit to know where we are. It's for our benefit to think about where we're at. God knows where each and every one of us are. He 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 prompts the question so that we'll take an evaluation of where we are. And so as they are evaluating where they are, God asked them where they were. And and he did know and he was gentle in giving them a chance to call out to him. He wanted them to recognize I'm right here, God, hiding behind a bush or hiding behind some foliage. This is where I'm at. He wanted them to be able to confess where they were, what they had done. Do it with all the spirit of humility because God knew what was going on and God knew their need. God knew that they needed a covering because at this moment they felt exposed. He knew that they needed a covering because at this moment they felt naked and they felt shameful. And without consulting them, this is great, without consulting Adam and Eve, God went to the business of slaughtering An innocent animal, slaughtering an innocent animal, shedding its blood, taking the hide of that animal. And the Bible says where they had made aprons out of fig leaves, God came up, and with that skin of the animal that was an innocent victim, he clothed them. He clothed them. He knew exactly what they had need of. Hiding among the trees, they were trying to hide their nakedness that they were now aware of. And by doing so, hoping to get rid of the shame that they now felt. So when the fig leaves together, again, they were trying to hide their nakedness and get rid of the shame that they were felt. God says, I know exactly what you need. The trees can't do it. A fig leaf's not going to do it. You need clothed. But that clothing necessitates the death of an innocent animal and blood to be shed in order for that to take place. And so it would never, never be the same again as they, that day, experienced God's judgment upon their disobedience. His judgment upon their disobedience was really deterred to a substitute, an innocent animal, by shedding blood. But in the same moment that they experienced God's judgment, even with the curses that fell upon the man and the woman respectively, and the serpent and the ground respectively, they also encountered His mercy. They encountered his mercy because they were clothed with the skins of that animal and he covered their nakedness. If I can say it like this, God made a way for them to continue to exist within his creation. He gave them the promise of redemption. And I think that's important to grasp with our minds and our hearts today that whether us entering into life as sinners or whether we fall prey to temptation and mess up. That God is there with two hands ready. One, that yes, absolutely it's judgment. But he does not bring that without also bringing mercy. Right? He said he would make a way for you to escape. Although he is a God that's heavy in judgment, he is also a God that's very much so heavy in mercy. And you've got to ask yourself this morning, how many times in your life have you experienced, if you will, the anger of God or the judgment of God or when God has not been too well pleased? And as you begin to count those up, I want you to switch gears and ask yourself, how many times have you experienced the mercy of God? How many times have you experienced the love of God? Because He comes with both hands, judgment and with mercy. Amen. Amen. He wants us to be a redeemed people. That's not about a one time and an altar call where we, we make our, our we confess our sins unto God. That's not about that. It's about living a life of redemption because whenever temptation even comes and we make choices and decisions that are not well thought of or well promoted by God and by his word that we have the Bible says an advocate with the father. Amen. And he can somehow help us by means of a gift of repentance to get back on track where we need to be and where we ought to be this morning. God does not want a single human to suffer an eternity without him. It's never God's will, never God's purpose. We read in the scriptures how he it's not his will that any should perish, but all would come unto what? Repentance. It's his nature. If you think about it, whenever he started in the book of Genesis in the very beginning, God, what does God do? He is a creator. He is a creator. He is not largely identified as a destroyer, but he is a creator. He likes to create. He also then likes to redeem what he's created. Yeah, but but, 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 the story of the flood is even a good story we'll say well we got destruction here yeah it was it was the judgment of god because of the wickedness of mankind and the wickedness that was in his heart but whenever things are all said and done and noah steps off of that boat at the end of the day what has god been up to after the waters have resi- reside, resided. He's been redeeming creation. Back to green grass. And all and of trees. That a dove could bring to the window. For Noah to know that everything's well. He wasn't going to bring destruction. Without trying to bring redemption through it. Mercy. Mercy was being extended to mankind. And so he is patient. God is patient. He's long suffering. And I would dare say. And I don't, I'm not asking anybody to attempt this. Or try this. But. Is patience at sometimes we see can almost not be exhausted, yet there are episodes in Scripture where it seems like it was exhausted. It's only a few through the pages of Scripture that ever reached the point that they exhausted, if you will, or tried hard the patience of God. Matter of fact, let's consider a question this morning. Is there a line? That individuals or groups can cross to permanently be separated or exiled from God. On the Niagara River in New York is a certain place in the rushing rapids the locals call the line of no return. They say that if you are in the water, and some of you have been to Niagara Falls in that area, They say that if you're in the water at that point, at the line of no return, that the current is so strong that you have 13 seconds before plunging over Niagara Falls, usually then, of course, to your demise. Everything's fine and dandy till you reach that one line of 13 seconds and life can be said and done. The, the, The rapids and the pool can be so great that you can't get be on them. Now, in Scripture, there's some extremely rare cases in Scripture, but some apparently have crossed that line of no return. There's a man in the Bible by the name of Esau who seemingly approached and flirted with that line of no return. He demonstrated in his life that he didn't have no tenderness or no respect for the things that be of God. Let's look at it in Hebrews chapter number 12. Hebrews twelve fifteen through 17, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. Uh, it, it gives us some insight into what happened with Esau. It says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit, sorry folks, that when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears key description concerning Esau in these verses of scripture it describes him that he was a profane person he was a profane person and scripture stands up wanting to defend the critical reference by telling us that he sold his birthright and we got to ask ourselves a question why in the world would Esau want to sell his birthright why why would Jacob why would Jacob even try to get a hold of what he could have seen as a priceless gift if Esau was wanting to get rid of it so easily? You know, if someone wants to get, if, if you're trying to buy something from someone and they're willing to go right, way low and willing to get rid of it, you're starting to think, what's wrong with this car? Right? <laughs> well. <laughs> You know, what am I not seeing here of my natural eye? Let's look under the hood one more time. Smell the oil and transmission fluid and all that good stuff you do. At least that, that's what dad says. You smell the transmission fluid and stuff you, you do. What, what is going on with this thing if they're wanting to get rid of it? Jacob could have been in those very shoes. Esau is willing to let go of this for a bow of porridge. Then, then is this really something that is a priceless gift that I should love and adore? But Esau did not see the gift that God had given to him by being the firstborn as it really was a gift. Amen. And so whenever we read later that he is upset, that he is thinking in his past and thinking, I should have never given up that birthright. I'm hungry right now. I should never give up that birthright. The Bible says that he sought repentance. He sought it carefully with tears. But evidently, if he was seeking it with tears, and one thing's important, tears doesn't always equal repentance. Just because somebody cries at an altar doesn't necessarily mean they repented at an altar. I've cried a few times in my life in our house. So, Mom and Dad, I cried because I got caught. Yeah. I cried because I knew judgment was coming. Yeah. You hear me? And we start making the bargaining. I'll never do it again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know how it goes. Right? Cried because I got caught, not not cried because I was upset about what I'd done and wish I had, you know, I was truly sorry or I was going to change my way. As a matter of fact, anybody that knows me or our family knows that it took several times before I got it right in my head and in my bottom uh, through to me that what I did was wrong and that I needed to see it as wrong. But Esau, he saw it carefully with tears, but it could have been the tears of self-pity. Not necessarily tears that were inspired by conviction, but by self-pity. And he was looking for a place of repentance, maybe. But was he really looking for was he just looking for a place to undo what was done without him having to be responsible? Because that would be a great way to live life now, wouldn't it? Do what you want to do. And at any moment in time, you can undo what was done without any consequences. Because sometimes that's the way we try to lead our lives. Do what you want to do without any consequences. At a moment's time, we can just change all this around and hit the reset button. You know, and it'll be okay. But Esau evidently reached a place. Self-pity of not really maybe being truly sorry or wanting to really turn around what was going on. And he saw a place of repentance, but he did not find it. He had reached a place, if you will, of no return. And in that episode, folks, I don't believe it is so much so a God thing of God rejecting him. But it's that Esau is not approaching God on the terms that God has laid out in his word. On the terms that God has laid out in his word. So there is is no concrete theology this morning that that just uniformly tells us, emphatically informs us exactly when we run out of God's mercy. We know they're new every morning and we know this and that. But there must be some type of place because there are a few people in Scripture. Even like the Pharaohs, their hearts become hardened to a place that they are calloused and no more, no more impacted by the Lord or the drawing of the Lord or the presence of the Lord. And so... There was one man that I knew one time, he was, he was worried about something that he had done. He had crossed a line, uh, what some would assume be a line of no return. Uh, he, he, he made light of a major uh, church doctrine of the scripture. I say church doctrine, let me say a biblical doctrine. He sought some wise counsel from spiritual authority in his life, and he was assured that because of his behavior, had not been a pattern and his heart had not been a part of a lifestyle of constantly doing that, but he just flubbed up in a moment that this man could be restored back to a right relationship with God. And I believe that's where the, 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 the rubber meets the road, so to speak. It's are you practicing a lifestyle of something, you know, he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. The Bible says there remaineth no more sacrifice for that sin. And basically what that means, we've interpreted that for years sometimes wrongly. It's not that uh, there, there is not a sacrifice to be able to take care of that sin, but it's that whenever Jesus went to the cross, he was the last sacrifice. Whenever Jesus went to the cross, he, was the, he went once, the Bible says. He was the last sacrifice. So there remaineth no more sacrifice for that sin. In other words, there's not going to be another bull or another goat or anything like that. There's only one sacrifice that ever took care of sin, and that's already been taken care of. But when you know to do good and do it, not. We're flirting on dangerous ground because we know and if we practice a lifestyle that that's not a mistake. When you do it every day and you know it's wrong, that's not a mistake. That's not a brother trout. Well, I didn't know. No, you knew and that's defiance. As you have children, you, you see where they like to push the envelope. They already have this understanding with you that something is wrong. But what do they do? They push the envelope. They put their hand there. They look back at you. Uh, testing the waters. And we smacked our kids' hands and other things. We took a rod of correction and laid it to their backside as Proverbs admonishes. Tried to drive hell out of their life. Amen Going on this morning God's reaction To human sin Is first anger And then mercy First anger And then mercy On more than one occasion The anger of God Has helped Dissuade A human being From what they were going to do because they knew it upset God. His disapproval sometimes is enough. Cause us to steer from what we were going to do to what God would want us to do. And oftentimes, though, what happens after you after you see that disapproval or that anger of God? He follows it up many times by mercy. Why? He's like, I could have did something. But I'm not. Why? Because you turned. I could have, but I didn't. We see this in the scripture, in the story of Jonah. Whenever God sent Jonah to a very wicked city, he sent him with a message of doom, really? A message of despair. You have 40 days. You have 40 days. And God's going to bring destruction. He told him in Jonah 3 and 4. You have 40 days, Jonah says, and God's going to bring destruction upon this city. Yet whenever the pagan king of that city heard the instruction of Jonah, he called a city-wide fast. Every man, every woman, boy, girl, all the way down to the animals. The animals was on the fast. You know it's serious business when you have a little, you know, Toto over here on the fast, he's not getting dog food for three days because God is meaning business. Everybody went to a fast, amen. They were humble before the Lord, and the Bible says while they were doing all this, that the Lord repented, which basically means he changed his mind. The Lord changed his mind, and he withheld judgment from coming upon the city. Now, the prophet comes up and said, God's angry doom is coming. But because of their reaction. Because of their response, might I say, because of their repentance, God says, I'm going to change my mind and withhold judgment. What's that? God's mercy. God's mercy. Amen. Now, God's justice. God's justice. He's a right God. He's a true God. God's justice requires judgment. You want a true and a right God. Everybody wants that. I don't want a God that's true. I want a God that's right. If you do, then that means that that justice requires judgment. We want it. We want a good justice system that requires judgment. Whenever a person goes to court, they want justice. That requires judgment. And so they want justice and that requires judgment for disobedience. And but whenever God responds to the, the king of Nineveh, It demonstrates what God is always looking for even in his times of justice and anger. He's always, and you need to tuck this in your heart, God in his judgment and God in his anger is always looking for a justifiable reason to extend mercy to you. He's looking for some way he can be merciful. I'm I'm coming with justice and judgment, but I'm looking just for an avenue, something in their soul, something in the spirit, some way, that I can extend mercy to them. And I would dare to say, Sister Trout, this morning, we have all been products then of God's mercy. His heavy hand of justice have come into our life, but while he was wanting to serve judgment to us, Brother Trout, God's saying, how can I get mercy to him? How, how... If the world only knew, uh, sometimes they just have this idea and concept of God being the God of a judge. And he is. And justice. He's true and right. And he is. But all the while, he's serving his judgment. He's saying, where's the loophole where I can insert mercy? Where's the little? I tell you this morning that God is in this place wanting to show mercy to somebody today. Amen. Through your sin, through whatever temptation you may have befell to God wants to find a way to extend mercy to you this morning. Now, when 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 Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God, they experienced the shame. The Bible says that their eyes were open. They recognized their nakedness, which before they were naked, but the recognition of it was not there. They heard his voice calling to them and when they did even Adam took God he said lo we were afraid we were afraid and we went and hid ourselves you know something's up when the same encounter that you would had with God before and now you have later one created fear and one didn't yeah If if even coming to church, if you come to church and before you used to feel comfortable. But now you feel a little uncomfortable. That might be indication something's happened. And since Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, something's probably happened on this side of the fence. If the same place I always went to church and raised my hands and magnified God and prayed, I felt comfortable. Now I don't feel comfortable with what's going on. God's presence is still just true and the same. He's still coming down to the garden to talk with them. But what's happened now? They have transgressed against the Lord. And so they don't feel like they once felt because of their transgression. And so as a result, they're dealing with what? Shame and fear. Those are two emotions that oftentimes dominate whenever we have been disobedient to the Lord. Matter of fact, shame is so quick to the gun that the moment or in the moment that it's happening, it's already coming upon you, feeling bad about what you did. It does. And sometimes God through that is already trying to cause us to draw back our hand, draw back our involvement, our involvement. But they're healthy. We need shame and fear to come into our lives. Hopefully they will help turn us then back toward God. Hopefully they'll help us engage in a moment of repentance back toward the Lord and seek the Lord for what? For forgiveness of our sins or whatever mistake or whatever it is that we have done wrong. Because, folks, if disobedience is not confronted, the emotions of shame, the emotions of fear, they can be very debilitating to your life. We have had, you know, this for surety. People sometimes come into a house of God, overwhelmed with shame and fear of whatever they have done with their life up to that moment and so piled underneath that, that it almost has been destruction for them because they didn't see no hope. They did not see a way out. I mean, Adam and Eve, no doubt they were dealing with that or they'd never hid themselves from God. try to make aprons and such, they felt that shame and that fear whenever God found them. And what they needed was to find then, rather than a place to hide, they need to find a place to repent. Oh, boy, that's good for us to process that in those moments that we fall from the Lord, we don't need a place to hide. We need a place to repent. Yes, yes. That's not the moment, uh, 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 Brother Trout, to become, uh, you know, some hermit and just stay away from the church. No, that's the moment you need to expose yourself to the house of God. You need to find a place to repent, not to hide. Amen. Amen. Now, I, I know that's going to feel uncomfortable, but we need that. We need that to prompt us into a place of repentance. Also, this morning, the essential nature of God is love. The Bible says that. God is love. Love the Bible says in Second Peter 3 and verse number nine this morning. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Whenever God deals with us in our sin, in our temptation, God is known to be patient. He has nerves of steel. I don't know how he does it. I thought, I thought getting married and having kids taught me patience. But then whenever I think what God contends with, oh, Lord, I'm far from even being patient. The long-suffering and the patience that God has dealing with people. With people. The chances... That God gives us as his creation doing the same thing. I'm not talking about something different. The same thing over and over. And he's long suffering and he's patient. Let me tell you, if anybody ever experiences the the judgment of God, they will have had to trample all over the patience of God first. I guarantee you that he is patient whenever he's dealing with us. And he, the Bible tells us in John 12, that he is supernaturally. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. So he's patient with us, yet he is also in the same mode, drawing us. Even while we're trying to do wrong, he's trying to draw us saying, well, lift him up, Brother McGee. And we used to say, you know, if you worship the Lord, then he'll draw all men. No, no, no. Whenever it speaks about, he said, if i be lifted up, he was talking about being lifted up on the cross. The Bible says signifying concerning his death, being lifted up on the cross so that he would draw all men. So ladies and gentlemen, whenever Christ was put up on the cross, the drawing power upon men started and it's not quit. Do you hear me? The drawing effect... And power upon men started at Calvary and it's not quit. Every individual in the world today is being drawn by the Lord. As a side note, that's the reason why you don't need to be somehow tucked into a corner when it comes to your witnessing ability, because God has been drawing them ever since Calvary. Amen. It's in your corner. It's in your corner. And so nevertheless, he's drawn all men. So they're doing wrong. They're sinning. But he's constantly having that drawing effect and power upon all men. And the Bible also tells me, it says it in the Psalms. It says it also in 1 John that that God is willing. He wants to forgive. He's quick to forgive. Right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful, isn't he? And just to forgive us and cleanse us of all of our. Yeah. That's a promise of God. It's not like I confess to God and then I'm waiting for a 30-day notice in the mail, whether or not uh, we've been dealing with a lot of different notices in the mail here lately, and, uh, you know, and such, and sending stuff through uh, faxing and trying to, well, in 12 days all this will happen and so, so forth. It's not that with God. It's not like you confess and give me 30 days to consider your report and your story and I'll get back with you. No, the moment that we confess to God is the moment that God forgives us. The moment that we let it fly out our mouth and we own it, it's the moment that God says, I'll take your sin and I'll give you then my mercy and my grace. Amen. Thank the Lord that he does. And his resources are unlimited. So immediately upon confronting Adam and Eve in the garden, he makes a way for them to survive his judgment. Immediately. Immediately. Immediately, he makes a way for them to survive his judgment. Why? That's we, whenever he put them outside of the garden and that thing being guarded by a cherubim with a flaming sword, that wasn't God just further separating them from where they had lived. That was God's provision to survive his judgment. Because now, because of taking of the knowledge of of, of good and evil from that tree. Now, now, whereas before they would not die, now they're going to die. They're going to die. And had they stayed in the garden and partaken of the tree of life. Are you hearing me? They would have been perpetually in a sinful state. He says, I got to get them out of the garden. So that they don't take of the tree of life in their sinful state and perpetuate that. I got to get them out. Why? Because I want to give them a means of protection from the judgment that I have right here and placed in the garden. Come on now. Come on now. Yes, sir. That's your God. Justice and anger. Yes, but he's looking for a place to extend mercy to you. To us. He made a way for them to survive the judgment. Whenever Peter and Matthew 18 Peter approaches the Lord. He basically is asking the Lord, Lord, how many times in reality, Lord, should should we forgive man? Is it seven times, God? Seven times? Well enough. Jesus and Matthew multiplied that seven times by 70 times. 490 is what you get it mathematically but it seems to be the sense and the context in which Peter and the Lord is speaking of is within a day it's not really a number we're coming at with our tally marks of course you know well I uh, forgave that one and that one 5 10 no no it's just saying that there should just be such an amount of willingness to forgive your man just within a certain day and if God expects that of man How much does he expect of himself? And what capacity does he possess for the ability to forgive what you may have done? What I may have done. Not just in a lifetime, but even just in my day today. Going on this morning, I got to run. Always running. Sin is the reality of our broken world. And we must learn what to do when we succumb to temptation. Paul dress this battle that we face of coming into a fallen world and as a result of it, succumbing to sin and temptation because of the fallen world. And he said in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Everybody say all. All have sinned. All have sinned. John wrote that we are, we are deceived If we live under the pretense of a sinless life. In other words, there is an individual that has never sinned. He said, if a man says he has not sinned, he is a liar. (laughs) That's right. There is no goody two shoes. Everybody, we all, we all lay on the same shelf. We have all entered the world as sinners and we have sinned. No man has been without sin. Uh, That's setting under the sound of my voice this morning. And there's opportunity all around us especially today and probably at any moment in time but it just seems more flamboyant and in your face today there's opportunity all around to mess up if you want to mess up you can probably find it not far outside these doors and maybe inside these doors <laughs> yeah it is right there in our face it is it is made accessible by every individual doesn't matter how old you are how you know some people well, I'm such and such years old I'm past all that no See, that's the dangerous ground. When you think, you stand. Take heed, lest ye. Amen. And so, it's, it's, it, the life that we live is a dangerous life. It's a dangerous life. And none of us are untouchable. We can't be cavalier about, bless God, I've been in the church for 25 years. Well, put a medallion on your you know, lapel. That doesn't mean anything to the adversary. You know what it means to him? If I can make that one fall, there's 25 years of impact that can go throughout the waters. Because you take the the high, if like you take the high uh, red oaks of California, you have one of those fall, you know what it does? It smashes a lot of more trees that are lesser in size and infant to them, and they get smashed in the fall. Amen. Amen. So both mindsets are really a trap of the enemy when you think that, you know, well, just that cavalier attitude or that other attitude is you're untouchable or that it can't happen to me, I'm beyond that. We we should never think that we are quote unquote mature enough in Christ that we're no longer capable of sin. Because you see this right here? Flesh. <laughs> Woo, we capable. Because Paul said, sin is in my flesh. That's what he said. Sin is in my flesh. So that's why there's this constant war. Because as long as I'm still living in the real world and I'm in this body, there's always the possibility of that. It's only when there's the change that comes. And this body's laid to rest. And it goes back to the dust from which it came. And I have a new body. That, it's only at that moment. So we can't be relaxed then. We've got to be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, is seeking whom he may devour. That's the reason why he said be sober, be vigilant. Also this morning, I've got to move on. The result of Adam and Eve's transgression is they lost direct contact with God. Driven from the garden, which was the paradise on earth. God placed a curse upon each of them. He placed it upon the ground. A lot of hardships then they suffered as a result of that. In pain, she shall bring forth child. In the sweat of Adam's brow, he's going to bring forth food from the earth. Uh, The serpent is going to be going on his belly all the days, eating the dust of the earth. A lot of hardships that they suffered. But their disobedience opened a whole different world for them that they would not have had before. Now, their life was going to show forth physical labor. They were going to experience that pain. All this would not have happened had it not been for the disobedience. New threats all around them as a result of it. And perhaps one of the most difficult things of the new normal, if you could say that, for Adam and Eve, was that they would no longer have the close communication with God that they had had and once enjoyed in the garden. Of Eden. Prior to their sinful act, no sacrifice was needed. Sacrifice wasn't necessary. The only thing that it took or the only thing that was necessary to communicate with God was to show up at the special place at the special time every day. There was no hurdles, Brother Terry. There was none of that. I just really didn't feel like I connected with God today. There wasn't that. You know, we have those times now. feel like I'm talking to God. and My words are hitting the ceiling and falling back down. Prior to the fall, there wasn't that. You showed up the place at the time. Boom. You know, some days it feels a little bit more like work. Huh? It's like, you know, some days it's like, I don't know if I want to stay here very long because it just feels like fruitless. Or does that just happen to me? Huh? But in that day, before, the, 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 before all the downfall, it was they just showed up at the time, boom, and it happened. It just took place. There was, there was no hurdle seemingly to jump. There was no difficulty. Just the only thing that was necessary was just to be there. They talked with God. They walked with God. It was easy. If I can say it like this, it was natural. But because of the fall, it took something that was natural. Now it makes it a little bit more difficult. That it's, it's not natural now for people to pray. It should be, but it's not natural. It is something that we strive for in our Christian lives, day after day, a fight that we're constantly fighting, weeks and months that we get it right, and other times we don't get it as right as we should. Because because transgression entered. Let me say this. That was the result of the first transgression. And I find oftentimes, Brother Fred, that's the result of any transgression from that time in my life, that whenever I'm not on good standing with God, it's hard to pray to God. I want to do my own thing, go my own way. The last person I want to talk to is God. You know, a lot of times people, when they're asking for uh, opinions on what they're doing, they go to the people that they think might actually see it their way not usually asking the ones that might see it differently from them because what they want is someone just to flan the flame and not put a blanket on it. So so when I'm I'm doing the wrong, the last thing I want to do is talk to God because he's got big blankets. (laughs) He's, He's got big blankets. But after their sin, after their transgression, the relationship now changes. It's much different. What they had done actually estranged them or separated them from their creator who desired. Absolutely. He desired their fellowship. He desired to be with them. So from then on out, from that moment forward, a blood sacrifice was required to appease God's judgment because disobedience must be judged. There's no way around it. You hear me? It must be So a sacrifice was necessary to appease God's judgment before they could communicate, if you will, and could commence in communication again. So whenever God killed the animal, he made the covering. He was demonstrating the principle that the innocent must die for the guilty. That's what our Hebrews 9 scripture was pointing to today. Without the shedding of blood, more importantly, without the shedding of blood of the innocent, there's no remission for the guilty. It was an innocent, innocent animal's life that was taken to cover guilty Adam and Eve. And when we fast forward all the way to Calvary, the Lamb of God that Jesus Christ has spoken of, the great Lamb, it was an innocent life that was taken for the guilty. You know, we all have different reactions sometimes when we disobey God. And sometimes our concept of how we think God views us when we are disobedient will affect how we respond to God. But again, this morning, I got a man, I, everybody doing all right? Okay. Repentance, though, this gift of repentance, it is a gift to us from God. It's a gift to us from God. We cannot repent on our own. What are you saying, Brother McGee? I'm saying this. It takes the grace of God to bring us to a place of repentance. We cannot really take credit for turning to God on our own. In other words, if, you're, if there was a person sitting in a pew, uh, someone that was a sinner far from God here this morning, they made their way to an altar of repentance. Joe, old Louie or whoever his name or her name is. It's not that. Well, I've decided to go repent. No, God has pricked you even in that moment in your heart to cause you to even consider the idea of going. So he's given you the gift by dealing with you in that moment. In that moment, you know what? Maybe I should go to that altar prayer. That was not a Paul McGee thought whenever I did that at age eight. That was a God thought. He was giving me the gift to act upon and come and follow through with repentance. That's the reason why and we've said this before, this, you know, well, bless God, It's, it's not works, lest any man should boast. Folks, whenever I repented, that wasn't me working. God placed something in my spirit in order to prompt me. I was just responding to something that he did. I was responding to something that he did. And so I can't take credit for it. My flesh can't take credit for it. Amen but he gives us that desire to want to approach him and come to him. Hebrews 12 and 2 calls it that Christ Jesus is the author and the finisher. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. It's not that he just showed up in your baptism or just showed up when you received the Holy Ghost. Honey, he was there before you ever went to the altar of repentance. He's the author and the finisher of your story. Amen the initiator of it all and Paul said this concerning Christ Jesus in Philippians 1 6 he said he that hath begun a good work in you who began Christ he begun a good work in you you don't just finish it come along midstream he begun it and so if Christ gives us this this desire to repent and puts this in our heart then we can't take the credit for it And according to Philippians 2.13, it tells us that God is working in us, giving us both the desire or the will to do and the power to do. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't just give you the desire to do it. He'll give you the power to accomplish it. Everybody all right? That's where we can't get off on this thing. Well, I can't do it. Well, the statement is very true. Terry McGee can't do it. But the spirit that Terry McGee receives gives him the will, the desire, and the power. So if I can't do it, which is a true statement, Paul McGee can't do it. But if it's not being done, then I must not be in total surrenderance or submission to the will of the spirit. That's in me. That's desiring to do it and also enabling me by power. Huh? You shall receive power after you receive the Holy Ghost. A will and desire to do, but a power to function and to accomplish what the will wants. Amen. And what the will desires. First John 321. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. A lot of times heart, mind, soul. A lot of interchanges there in the Hebrew and the Greek. But if our heart, everybody say my conscience. When my conscience is clean, and my conscience is clear. You know what John's saying? You should feel good about your relationship with God. You should have confidence toward him when your heart is not condemning. What's that mean? That means I must be doing things all right because my conscience ain't saying, hey, don't do that. So I have confidence in my relationship with God when my heart or my conscience is clear and when my conscience is clean. We have confidence toward our walk with the Lord. That we're walking worthy of our vocation like uh, Paul said in the Ephesians and that we can pray boldly to the Lord. You can pray. Do you realize how bold your prayers can be whenever you're walking with a clear conscience with God? Yeah. I'm telling you as a pastor I've experienced. I've noticed my, my prayers be more vehement when I know I've been on point with God. Because whenever I'm not, I'm walking in there like little Adam and Eve. Feeling kind of, you know, shameful and, uh, hi God. You understand what I'm saying? You're more bold and you're more passionate whenever you're in good standing. Huh? When you are in good standing with God to do ministry, to engage the laws, go through various, various different levels and ways to serve Him in every way. You just feel like you can do it. The Bible says in Proverbs 28 and verse number one, the wicked flee. When no man pursueth, but the righteous are bowed as a lion. Case in point. <laughs> Nobody's pursuing the wicked, but they are running. Why? Because whenever you live that type of life, you're always having to look over your shoulder. You know, a liar, a liar, a liar is just a, the most miserable person that's got to keep track of all of his lies and all the conversations and people that he has in his life. If you're going to be a great liar, you better have a great memory. And let me tell you something: old age is coming. <laughs> Go catch up with you. Amen. It's wicked, they're, they flew with no emphasis, but the righteous are bowed as a line. Why? Why? Because they're right living. They don't have to look over their shoulder. They're, they don't have that weight that's above their head, so to speak so he's given us a gift of repentance. If you'll stand with me this morning, I'll close with this. Close with this story here today, if I can. A certain man went to a pottery shop looking for a beautiful piece of art. All the clay vessels had been designed and created by one man, the owner of the pottery shop. After viewing the beautifully created and crafted works, the man's eye just kept coming back to a particular piece on the top shelf. So one of the employees came over to the man and basically said something to him, said, I've, I, I see that you're looking at things here, and I just want to know if there's anything I can do, do for you, if there's something I could show you. The man said, I, I've noticed this unusual piece pottery that's perched high above over there back in the corner and he says I'm interested in buying that one. So the worker explained to this gentleman she said well you have to speak to the master potter about that one. He said Others have made inquiry about that particular piece of pottery as well wanting to purchase it but the owner has never never sewed it never let loose of it. So the worker disappeared through a door behind the counter there and in a few moments an aged man came from the back where he'd been creating his masterpieces and He said to the man, he said, I understand that you're interested in buying one of my pieces. As you can see, I have all kinds that you can choose from, and they're all guaranteed by me. They're the works of my hands. But the customer said, well, he said, I'm actually not interested in none of them that's down here. I'm I'm particularly intrigued by that one that's up there, you know, hiding seemingly from all the others back tucked in the corner. He said, may I ask what you want, uh, you know, for that one? And the the master said, well, why would you, why would you want that one? And none of the others, the customer replied, he said, well, you know, it possesses a little bit of a common shape like everybody else. But he said, the color's a little peculiar on that one tucked back in the corner. He said, well, he said, let me tell you something. He put the potter, put his hands down on the counter. He said, I'm sorry, sir. He said, but that vessel is not for sale. Customer was a little shocked. You know how we can be whenever someone says something's not for sale. (sighs) He said, but, sir, everything is for sale. You just got to name your price. I'll give you what you want. Again, there's a little bit of regret upon the potter's face. He says, I have created thousands of vessels in my career. I've painted them all to my heart's delight and content. But that vessel and its color may never be created again. He said, therefore, it's special to me. It's irreplaceable. The man said, but, sir, I don't understand. How could one clay vessel be so Special. The potter began to stare at him and explain. He said, as I began to work that piece of clay, he said, it resisted the will of my hands to work it. He said, I needed it roughly and I needed it softly, but nothing I did seemed to make it to yield to my plan. The guy said, well, why didn't you just throw it away and begin working with some other lump of clay? The potter said, you see, sir, when I begin to create a vessel, he said, I already have the finished product in my mind. I know what I want to do with it. I know what it can be. So whenever a piece of clay resists me and my plan, I'm not quick to throw it away. I'm patient because I know how to mold it. I know how to shape it. I know eventually it becomes valuable. That seems like a waste of time to me, the man said. Then he quickly added, so how did you salvage that piece of clay? The potter said, well, this is where the value of the vessel comes into play. When I reached my fingers into the mass of clay to pull out the part that was resisting my design, there was something sharp that cut my hand. I did not realize it at first, but after I removed the piece that caused the trouble, I began to notice the clay taking on an unusual color. I pulled my hands away from the clay as it whirled on the wheel and noticed that my hand had been bleeding. My red blood, had been mixing with the gray clay, not only helping to mold it, my good man, but also for the purpose of giving its unusual color to it. He says, so now you understand. He said, why that vessel is not for sale. Because while it may be just another vessel to anybody else, he said, to me it is priceless because my blood is invested in it. I'm here to tell somebody this morning he's not throwing any clay away today because his blood has been invested in every vessel that's standing before me this morning. He's come with a strong hand of judgment of trying to shape, but he gave you mercy. He imparted his blood to you. It gives you a different character, a different color, a different venue to stand out from all of the rest because he's given you a gift of repentance this morning hallelujah can we just raise our hands right now to the lord god i thank you lord for the shedding of blood god the shedding of innocent blood god for the one that is guilty i thank you lord jesus today for that I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. If we embow our heads all across this place this morning, just for a moment of time, before we depart from here today, and we have no service tonight, before we depart from here today, if there is anybody sitting on the sound of my voice that says, Pastor McGee, I understand I was born into sin. And if there's anybody sitting on the sound of my voice that says, Pastor McGee, I've been being pulled and tormented by temptation. It's trying to take me down a road that I know is is not proper down a road that I know is not kosher I need a gift of repentance today I need a prompting in my heart and I want to respond to the desire of God I know God will give me the power Lord to do what needs to be done I know he's faithful I know he's long-suffering I know he's patient I know his nature is love I know in judgment he's looking for a way to extend mercy to me and I need that today I need that today Hallelujah, Jesus. I love you, Lord. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Oh, can you raise your hands right now to the Lord? Begin to speak to him today. God, I need you. Amazing love, amazing love, amazing love, amazing love. God, a gift of repentance, God. You're drawing powers upon all mankind. You're drawing powers upon all mankind. Woman, man, elder, younger. It matters not, Lord, the age dynamic. It matters not, Lord, Jesus, God. Whatever has been done or not been done or contemplating to be done. I pray, God, today you are faithful, you are loving, you are kind, and you are compassionate. Hallelujah, 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 I love you, Jesus. Oh, someone say, amen. I need that gift of repentance. I need that gift of repentance. Amen. It was enough. It's enough that in the parable of, of Luke 15, what is it? It's one sheep that's gone. It's one coin in the woman's house that is swept for. It's one son, as it would seem, of the two, amen, that is being gone after. So God reaches even for one. We need not to forget that. Just even for one. So that even this morning, if there's just one, he's reaching. He's one to extend mercy, amen, to us today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Look at your neighbor and say, praise the Lord. Good to be in house.